Welcome to our Human Experience Podcast. I'm Professor Catherine Colborn, the Head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series features thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science academics who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. In 2020, we will be talking with researchers about language and culture, youth identity and the economy, the experiences of older gender minorities, public health policy and the history of domestic service and much more. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we are talking to Professor Catherine Colborn, the head of the School of Humanities and Social Science. Cathy is an internationally recognised historian and prolific author in the area of mental health history. Her work explores the social and cultural histories of mental health and the institutions that treated patients. She leads the Future of Madness Network at the University of Newcastle and has recently published a book, Why Talk About Madness? Bringing History into the Conversation. Thanks for joining us today, Cathy. Thank you very much for having me, Belinda. Now, one in four people today experience a mental health problem and the World Health Organisation says we are witnessing a global mental health crisis. And given the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it's obviously created many mental health challenges around the world. I'd love to hear about how your research is understanding this historically and what it means to study the history of madness and why these histories are so important to share. Thanks very much, Belinda. I think it's really an interesting moment for us in history because the global pandemic of COVID, as you've mentioned, has really made us think, I think, very differently about the threat or a spectre of mental health and illness in our communities. So it's given us an opportunity to look at where people might be more at risk. For example, people who have... uh, really worried a lot more about economic downturn, about threats to job security, about the distance from family or disrupted study, all of those issues which we know are very kind of um, current and worrying people. And interestingly, what it's done, it's brought out, I guess, um, a sense of everybody's mental health being somewhat more precarious. Uh, So the World Health Organisation in 2016 did some very interesting work around... um, the rise in reported incidences of mental illness problems around all sorts of global parts of our community. And uh, we're very quick, I think, to decide that it was important to look at questions of the impact on economic productivity, for example, for um, the nations of the world. And in fact, when people um, suffer from mental illness, we do lose their input into the economy, into family life. Uh, They, in turn, lose uh, a lot of their kind of sense of well-being and their ability to contribute to those things. So it is actually a very significant issue. So with the threat of um, COVID um, creating more panic and nervousness and anxiety in our communities, we see that being really thrown into a, a, well, the spotlight is on mental health um, again. And I think if we look carefully at that, we can work out how we could maybe support sectors of our community who are experiencing those um, kinds of concerns at the moment. The other thing I'd like to do, though, is talk about this historically and uh, paint a little bit of a picture for you of of what it would have been like in the past uh, to be diagnosed with a mental illness. 
So in the 18th and 19th century, uh, not that long ago really, so the, the early modern and modern period as we now define it as historians, people could be defined as mad or insane and taken to very large institutions which would house many hundreds and sometimes thousands of people. They were fairly unhealthy kinds of environments. And those people, like people today, were also impacted by social change and political change. So many of the people hospitalised in the past uh, with what we would define as different kinds of mental illnesses were also potentially suffering from economic um, downturn change, from uh, poor diet, for example, from separation or isolation from families. So in fact, what we see in the present is very similar to the kind of profile of mental illness communities and populations in the past. Mm-hmm. What do you think these histories can tell us about the challenges and legacies of mental health care across the world today? Well, I think we have to be very mindful that the social determinants of mental health remain similar. And of course, uh, historically, things have changed over time. We have a different kind of global economy now than in the 19th century, for example. But we started to see um, a rise in these kinds of uh, large institutions at the time of industrialisation in the 19th century. So in parts of Europe, in the United Kingdom, uh, North America was very similar, with industrialising populations moving to cities and, and large factories becoming normal. People were uh, separated from families and didn't have those family networks to fall back on. So we see in in that historical past uh, very similar patterns to the kind of um, impact, if you like, of economic change in the 20th and 21st century. So we see the rise of worries uh, in family life um, and concerns that perhaps are more similar than we might have previously thought in terms of past historical experiences. Mm, That's really interesting. Historically, many mental health care patients, as you say, were combined, treated and cared for in these very large institutions. However, there seems to be a shift in around the 70s and 80s to another mode of care for the mentally ill, whereby the care came from a community of people around the patient rather than an institution itself. How do you think the institutional closures changed the landscape of mental health care? Yes, it was a really huge moment, I think, in the life of um, many people, in in the lives of many people and in uh, psychiatric communities. So in the 1960s and 70s, there was an increasing concern, if you like, about the nature of psychiatry, uh, a political um, shift in the way people thought about large institutions. They found them damaging places, places where abuses could occur, and we know that to be historically the case. And so anti-psychiatry movements uh, grew But at the same time, very well-meaning and considered uh, people in the medical profession, among them psychiatrists, were thinking about alternatives to institutional care. And I should just say too that although large institutions were the norm around the world, there were, even in the 19th century, there were forms of family care in Europe and in Asia. Uh, So it wasn't always that large institutions were the only solution to mental illness. So there had been kinds of examples, if you like, of -of out-of-home care or um, communities in Europe where people were fostered by families uh, when they experienced mental illness, which is a really interesting history. So in the 1960s and 70s, we saw people starting to think about what could the alternatives be to large institutions and move towards such models in um, Australia, in North America, in um, the United Kingdom and Canada. So this is a really interesting history that has often been 
uh, labelled or understood as deinstitutionalisation, mm-hmm. so that closure of institutions that you've mentioned. And what happened there was idealistic. Uh, it was based on both economic change but also this sense of a political change in the way we think about mental health in the community. And it was also propelled by the movement of other institutional populations such as people with intellectual disability or children who'd often been housed inside institutions uh, or even people with brain injuries who'd been in institutions. So it wasn't only psychiatric patients. Uh, So these populations were moved progressively out into the community until by the 1990s, the last vestiges really of those large institutional communities were closed. And so that has really given rise to a very new way of thinking about how we think about madness in everyday life um, and about mental health and mental illness. Mm-hmm. And I believe you're doing a um, an Australian Research Council funded project on that particular era and what happened after the 1970s in, in the development of community psychiatry. Is that right? That's right. Look, this is a really interesting piece of research with my colleagues at the University of Sydney. So Professor Hans Pohls and Professor Paul Rhodes. Uh, Paul is actually a clinical psychologist and also um, Anthony Harris, who's a psychiatrist at Westmead Hospital. So it's a very multidisciplinary project, including historians and psychology and psychiatry. And we also have a really wonderful team of people who um, are engaged with the uh, service user consumer-led movement. So people who've experienced uh, hospitalisation and their own mental health challenges have been involved uh, as well in this project as we've started to, to address questions there. We're going to be interviewing uh, this year, going forward, hopefully in the next few months, uh, people who had a vision for mental health care from the 1970s onwards, people who were key players, if you like, in that shift towards community care. So this hasn't been done before um, and there hasn't been a good uh, documentation of what what happened at that time of such radical change uh, and you know, what were the casualties of that? What are the innovations that we've held on to? What worked and what didn't work out of that really interesting period of history? So we're focusing on uh, mainly on New South Wales and part of Australia more more generally around the edges. Um, and I have a PhD student also who's involved in that project uh, who's writing a piece about Newcastle uh, and the hunter in relation to these changes in community care. Mm, it sounds like a really interesting project to be involved in. I look forward to seeing some uh, outcomes from that in the future. And in terms of this move to community psychiatry, it sounds like the changes really opened up mental health treatment and allowed families to become more involved. And it wasn't just a matter of sticking someone in an institution anymore. What, what, what did that change look like? I'm really glad you mentioned families because, in fact, families were also present in uh, the lives of people who were confined in institutions in earlier periods of history. So some of my earlier research looked at the way families were very deeply implicated in institutional care and, you know, negotiated with institutions, with doctors and navigated that difficult uh, kind of territory, if you like. And uh, patients, as, as they were known, were also able to have forms of trial leave. They were able to go home. Uh, they were able to have visitors. So there is evidence, you know, of this happening in the 19th century. However, of course, it wasn't for everybody. Um, Not everybody had family who could do that or even uh, family who were prepared to be advocates. So what we see in the later historical period by the 1970s and 80s is families much more heavily involved and invested in such 
discussion and debate, uh, sometimes uh, working as, as advocates in the community to help their loved ones negotiate laws around mental health or uh, medical systems uh, and to talk to doctors with, you know, people in their family who needed that kind of support base. So families have always been, I think, involved, but even more uh, carefully involved in the late 20th century. And I think that tells us something quite interesting about, um, I guess, some of the um, myths ar around uh, ma madness or, or what it meant to, to be mentally ill, that you were sort of just put away in institutions and forgotten. I don't think that's really true. However, it might be true for some people who didn't have those family connections. Mm -hmm. Your newest book uh, contains the term madness in the title. Uh, it's called Why Talk About Madness? Bringing History into the Conversation. And it provides a fascinating summary on the history and relevance of first-person accounts of mental breakdown. It also looks at how psychiatric patients, survivors or consumers have been represented over time and the significance of this representation. What does history tell us about talking about mental health as a subject? Yeah, so I'm really, again, glad you, you raised that question. The the new little book does use the t term madness and uh, I think I should unpack that a little bit uh, perhaps for people because it might seem like quite a shocking word for people uh, who haven't really thought about why um, consumers and activists, families and those with lived experience might want to use that word. So it became um, much more acceptable to use the word madness as people who were advocating on behalf of themselves or, or others in, in terms of mental illness uh, decided that it was a, an appropriate word to reclaim, if you like. So my little book, Why Talk About Madness, suggests that that reclaiming is very political. Uh, it's about making sure that it's okay to talk about the problem of mental illness and mental breakdown in a public way uh, to acknowledge it. And we've seen that in many public health campaigns around mental illness. There are some launching right now about young men in Australia, for example, and they're often fronted by celebrities in our modern day culture. So it's okay to talk about your mental health struggles and it's okay to use the word madness. So people who have experienced forms of mental illness have reclaimed the word in the sense that they've said, you know, I, I was really mad. I was um, experienced this, you know, very uh, out of body experience that that made me unwell. And it's okay to understand that and use that language of madness. And that's really where that's coming from. And so, consumer advocates, um, activists have really. Um, pushed, I think, for a new understanding of language in all of this. So sometimes they define themselves as consumers, people who've consumed mental health services, sometimes as survivors of those services if they were hospitalised in large institutions, and sometimes as people with lived experience, which means that they live with it every day. I think it's quite profound thinking about that kind of linguistic shift. Uh, so in the early years uh, of my own studies as an academic, as a historian, I went to conferences and I would present papers about madness in the asylum and people would question the language, whereas now I think there's a, a quite different understanding of what that language means. So the book is really about um, making sure that we acknowledge all the political attempts by people in our um, community to talk about mental breakdown, uh, how that's changed over time, where it's had a particular impact uh, who has spoken and why they've spoken, when they've spoken, such as through official inquiries or in private writings or in, in the media. Um, and it it takes us through a series of, I guess, 
historical moments where this kind of debate has been made public and has been opened up for a public audience. Mm, yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, even uh, these days to see things on TV and a celebrity might come out and, and, and tell us about their mental health issues that they're having, it seems to be more and more accepted these days that it is something we can talk about publicly. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I think one of the issues there is to think about the stigma that's always been associated with, with mental illness or with having mental illness. And so rather, you know, back to this question of language, rather than saying um, so-and-so is mentally ill, it's much preferable, much more preferable for us to acknowledge that someone might be experiencing mental illness at a particular moment in time. And there are cycles of, of recovery in that people can go from unwell to to better or well and then go back again. So it's not like an illness which is a physical illness in the sense that uh, we might see somebody um, make a full recovery. There, there are different kinds of stages in a mental illness problem or, or question where somebody might go through various stages of being well and then unwell. So I think that's um, important to acknowledge that the struggles people have go on beyond, you know, one episode, I think, of, mm. of being unwell. Mm -hmm. And in your book, I believe you feature some of the key thinkers uh, that have had a big impact on the field and some of those who've had uh, experience of, of this confinement themselves. Can you tell me about some of those? Yeah, well, increasingly, uh, uh, there are people in this psychiatric community who are speaking out, who are writing, uh, offering uh, accounts of their own experiences. I interviewed one of them in my, my little book that we've just mentioned, uh, Mary O'Hagan. So Mary O'Hagan is someone with lived experience. Uh, she has been a mental health advocate in New Zealand. She's actually had a quite international profile in terms of her advocacy. And she's written her own account, her own memoir uh, of of being mad, of, of uh, having that experience. So she's one example. And there are many others like her um, in Australia as well. So Mary's based in New Zealand. But I also met in my travels um, an, a Canadian historian called Geoffrey Riome. And uh, Geoffrey Riome is a, a really terrific historian. He wrote a book about 19th century madness in uh, Toronto. And he wrote that after a period of his own hospitalisation when he was a young man. So when he wrote a historical account using the archival records, the similar ones that I've used as a historian, um, he was able to, I guess, relate and understand those records from a quite different perspective because of his own experience. Mm -hmm. But there are any number of people now writing um, as historians but also as um, you know reflections of their own experience who are really making that um, a much more interesting area of study because you can see now it's not a kind of um, a historical account that's very distanced from the experience but one that weaves in the experience. It's a much more powerful way to proceed. Mm, definitely. I believe you're also second chief investigator on another Australian Research Council discovery project that's focused on the impact of solitary confinement on convicts from 1817 to 1853. I'd love to hear about what that research is revealing. Yeah, that's a really interesting project as well. So that's one that's being led by Professor Hamish Maxwell-Stewart at the University of Tasmania and a number of colleagues, including uh, two colleagues based in the UK, one in Ireland, uh, Catherine Cox, and one in England, Hilary Marland. And they have also written about the history of madness in those contexts, but are now working on prisoner populations uh, in the UK and Ireland. And uh, so Hamish and I both knew those as historians, and we have other colleagues in the project uh, and a PhD student who's also based, based here at the University of Newcastle, Catherine Kenny. Uh, and so that's really about linking Hamish's very 
important work about convicts in Australia, and particularly in Tasmania. He's worked on large uh, populations of convicts using um, data from all the archives in Tasmania, and he's very well kind of connected into the heritage and archive community there. Uh, and we're linking his work to my work on psychiatric confinement and uh, making connections between uh, convicts who were uh, transported to Tasmania and who then maybe found themselves in psychiatric confinement. Um, this is a very important project from the point of view of an archival historian because we're looking at record linkage. So we're looking at how different archives and different records of individuals might actually find themselves connected in these kinds of intricate ways. So um, prisoners who then became patients, for example. And also the project is framed by this idea of solitary confinement or solitary treatment. And uh, Hamish is very keen to find out whether prisoners who experienced uh, solitary periods of solitary treatment uh, inside cells and, um, you know, you can understand the idea of, of someone being locked away without... Um, so sensory deprivation and without food and, and without light, all those kinds of deprivations, whether or not that exacerbated um, an experience of mental illness and that led them to be hospitalised. Mm. So we're still making those links and we're still in kind of relatively early stages, but there's a large amount of data. And uh, the PhD student based here, Catherine, is working on women convicts and she's looking at particularly interested in sensory histories mm -hmm. and at sensory deprivation. That's mm. quite exciting. Yeah, that mm. sounds fascinating. I'm sure there'll be some real connections made there, definitely. Um, I believe you've also recently started a new network here at the university which is focused on madness. I'd love to hear about the purpose of the network and who you've got in it. Yeah, okay. So um, that's quite exciting for us. So uh, I have um, mentioned a few of the names already, but the Future of Madness Network uh, came out of my sense that we had this growing interest in the histories of mental health, psychiatry, madness uh, across both 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. And uh, it includes uh, Dr. Elizabeth Roberts-Peterson, who uh, has had a Discovery uh, Early Career Research Award from the Australian Research Council. She's just finished that. And she has worked on military psychiatry. Elizabeth and I are working on a book together, actually, and it's for a series uh, called Critical Approaches to Health for Routledge, and it's called Making Mental Health a Global History. I'm really pleased about this book because we're writing it in the next few months and, and we've, we're under pressure, but we're sharing that writing, and I've, I think co-writing a book is a great experience. I'm writing chapters about institutions in global perspective and situating the book in, in various arguments there. And Elizabeth is writing chapters about mental health therapies in the 1930s and 50s, mental health and psychopharmacology and biomedicine. And then we return to themes of politics of mental health, which I'll be talking about. And we end on a note of where does uh, the, what's the future look like for mental health? So in a way that ties us very nicely with our network as well. Uh, we have Catherine Kenny, I mentioned, who's doing her PhD, Robin Dunlop, who's also doing her PhD with me. Uh, we have Dr Effie Karagiorgis, who's joined us at the University of Newcastle and who's also worked on um, militarism, psychiatry and masculinity. Uh, we have James Dunk, Dr James Dunk, who's based at the University of Sydney and wrote a wonderful book about convict uh, and early Sydney society and madness. Um, and he's actually 
the, the person we can say who came up with the idea of the future of madness as the title for the network. Uh, and there are others involved as well. But it's an opportunity for us to push the boundaries, if you like, of our interest and involve others from other disciplines. So I'm excited about the potential there and about taking that into some, I guess, um, public-facing events. For example, looking at centenaries uh, of the James Fletcher Hospital here uh, in Newcastle, uh, looking at the way in which we might publicise our own research but also bring others in to talk to us about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like your network is going to be covering some really intriguing themes there. We look forward to seeing more coming forth about that. It's been really fantastic having you here today talking to us, Cathy. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. 